Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, and this is 112BK coming to you from downtown Brooklyn. On the show today, up to his elbows in a cow's vagina, farmer John Connell takes a journey within in his new memoir, The Farmer's Son. The book is a, is a book about a man falling in love with life again after a bad time. And uh, I think there's a universality to that. And then our resident self-taught houseplant enthusiast, Caroline Gollum, talks about propagation stations, fungus among us, and wandering Jews. People have been imbuing their anxieties about their status and about who they are as people into their plants for like literally a hundred and something years. a lot about cows lately. The New York Times devoted its entire food section to climate change. It was great and very important, and also it sucked. At least it did for us omnivores. I'm sure the vegans felt pretty smug about it because it contained passages like this. Meat and dairy, particularly from cows, have an outsized impact, with livestock accounting for around 14.5% of the world's greenhouse gases each year. Our next guest is also someone who has thought deeply about cows, sometimes while he's up to his elbows in a vaginal passage. John Connell has a new memoir out called The Farmer's Son, and in it he details his return to his family's farm in Ireland over the course of a calving season. Welcome, John. Thank you, and a great way to get introduced. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's start a little bit with um, how the book opens. You're delivering a calf. You're helping a cow deliver a calf. Yeah. Um, It seems like a very grueling and gruesome process. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose above all, it's a it's a joyful thing and it's a beautiful thing. Um, but uh, as so often for many farmers uh, with with cows, you have to give the cow a hand. And uh, the book starts with me being 29 years of age, delivering this calf by myself for the first time, which is very old for a farmer's son. Um, but I'd been away for a long time and uh, it was a really... Um, it was fun, but it was it was stressful. <laughs> and uh, the birth of the calf was also the birth of the book because for a long time I had wrote uh, different things, but none had been about me and my life. Mm. And I was following that old thing of write what you know, but writing what you know involved having your hand up a cow's passage to, to find out what that was. It seems like a very complicated procedure. I was surprised to find out that it involves ropes and a winch. Yeah, How yeah. Did how did cows give birth before farmers had a rope and a winch so, standing around? Yeah, so they would have been, the cows would have been a lot smaller and the calves would have been smaller and um, the mortality rate would have been higher. Not every, um, you know, as in the wild, not every um, birth was successful because cattle are worth so much more money. Uh, we have to be there and we've bred them to be bigger because they're beef beef cattle. So uh, you got to be there to help. Now, more often than not, a lot of a lot of them do it themselves, but some can't. So we have to be there to supervise. So talk to me a little bit about how you came to write this book. You mentioned that you had been writing for years before this, but mm. not your own story. How did you find yourself back on your family farm at age 29? Yeah, well, um, I had been like yourself. I'd been a journalist and a filmmaker, and um, I'd ended up living in Australia. I'd went at uh, as a student and ended up um, becoming a permanent resident and and had a production company and made uh, human rights programs. And uh, life was great until it wasn't. And um, there's no easy way to say it, but I had some mental health problems. And I decided to come home under the pretext to write, but really it was to get better. And 
I wrote two books before this. I wrote one about JFK and one about the Syrian refugee crisis. But the last time I checked, I wasn't a Kennedy and I certainly wasn't Syrian. <laughs> so right. those weren't my stories to tell. Um, and it was at the uh, request of my agent saying, well, you're working on a farm. Maybe you should write about this. And I resisted for a very long time. Um, but actually, that's uh, the thing I, I should have done. And farming was the farming was the thing that brought me back to um, the positive now moment. You know, it was a very healing and restorative thing for me, and it allowed me to see um, the extraordinary ordinariness and beauty of life. And you write a little bit about how coming home was not without its own issues. Um, in particular, you and your father have a complicated relationship. Can you talk to me a little bit about why that was so fraught and maybe some of your fears about coming back to work with him mm. on the farm? So I suppose uh, every farming family <laughs> has this. It's, not, it's nothing unique. I suppose fathers and sons on farms and fathers and daughters and mothers and daughters, they can be like two bulls in a field. You can't really have two bulls in a field because one has to be the boss. And uh, I was coming in trying to, I suppose, undermine his um, ideas and saying, well, if we should we should switch to organic, we should do this and, um, you know, let's try to bring our carbon footprint down. And you're going against generations of farming and ritual and culture. Um, so we were trying to get to know each other, really. And I'd been away for so long uh, as an immigrant. So coming back here, I was as an adult and uh, with with an adult's personality. So we had to find a way of being. And the book while it's about farming and all this, but really it's a book about life and it's a book about family and how intergenerational issues come up in every family um, and how we deal with them. You write about how he sacrificed for you um, and about how there was hope that your generation would be the first one who wouldn't have to emigrate. Mm. And then, of course, the Celtic Tiger collapsed, collapsed yeah. in 2008-ish. Yeah. And you did, in fact, emigrate. I guess you emigrated before that. To go to college? Yeah, I mean, uh, I went, my name was picked out of a hat, probably not unlike this one, mm -hmm. uh, to go to Australia and uh, as an exchange student. And in in the first few months I was there, the crash happened. So there was no way to come back, really. Um, there wasn't a career to be had. And at the height of the recession, there was something like 30,000 people leaving a month. So it was it was a ground zero place. And um there was a great sadness, I think, in, in my parents' generation and the baby boomers' generation because um, all we'd ever known was leaving. And then this generation were going to be able to stay, build the country, and the, the knowledge base wouldn't leave. You talk also about when you did come home, the importance of being back on the land mm. um, and about how in many ways it replicated um, things that you had heard from Aboriginal uh, Australians yeah. or Indigenous Canadians um, and about especially, you know, this land as a place of, of genocide um, yes. during yeah. the, the famine yep. um, and about how important it was to sort of be back on the land and working with the land. Yeah, so we have a phrase in, in Ireland, uh, in Gaelic, and it's Balyagas and it means the place of connection or the driok, the magic of the place. And um, I worked with Aboriginal people a lot as, as a, in Australia as a journalist and, and have many Aboriginal friends. And the way they view the world, it's very similar to Irish people. And of course, their history is a similar history of genocide and, and usurpation. So the land is a healing thing and it brings us connection. And... Um, it was funny, actually. It was also a, another side of it, which I didn't talk about in the book, but uh, 
Henry David Thoreau's writings really influenced me. So American transcendentalism, seeing God in nature um, and whatever manifestation you want to take of God. Um, but there is a extraordinary healing power in in the land and and a rootedness. And of course, coming from coming from a rural place, those fields shaped my soul. And then when you live in a city, uh, it can be hard to feel the natural connection. You know, a city can give you everything, but when you're burnt out, we all have to find that balance uh, of, 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 of biophilia, of nature, uh, because it is what we came from and it is what, what heals and restores us, but also maintains us. Um, I wasn't kidding about thinking a lot about cows lately. I am thinking a lot about <laughs> cows lately. I really enjoy dairy products and meat, mm. and I don't feel like it's a, a moral issue for me about yeah. you know the sanctity of an animal life. Um, but at the same time, I feel like someone like you should be able to eat all the meat and dairy that you want because you have a connection to the animal and that process of life and death yeah. in a way that I don't. Tell me how to feel. <laughs> oh, well, uh, that's the issue of 2019, I suppose. Right. Um, look, the way it is at the moment, there are we're going to be getting up on 10 billion people soon, and there isn't enough land to produce uh, all the food we need. So we have to think smart about it. The milk and dairy and, and, and beef that we produce in Ireland is on a very small uh, scale. Uh, we're working in harmony with nature. So it's easier to... Uh, to, to consume that product. But then you put a cow in a feedlot in the US or Australia, it's not just America, uh, and the whole dynamic changes because the cow is not allowed to be a cow in a sense. It's not getting it. It's not being able to be in nature itself, being grass-fed and pasture-raised. I think the issue at the moment is it's about the flow of information. And when people hear about uh, someone eating meat and uh, uh, say it's from the vegan the vegan community, they say, well, you're a terrible person for doing that. But it's actually like, well, if you explain that this came from a family farm and there's 30 cows there and the, the mom and pop absolutely know all these cows and love them and these cows put the kids through school, no one is making a fortune on it. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, with consuming that meat or that milk. But when we get into big ag, we're getting into a very complex and at times very shady and corrupt uh, world. Um, if we're to look down south to Brazil, um, Brazil is being looked at as a as a leader in beef production. Um, and as the Chinese market, it's all see, it's all connected. So China wants to eat more meat. They don't have the land to produce it, so they're looking to Brazil to produce more meat. But in order for Brazil to produce more meat, they have to cut down more rainforests. But there is also a human cost to that because uh, they're inward migrants who are forced into uh, modern slavery to work on these beef farms. And there's about up to 100,000 people who are modern slaves working on beef farms in Brazil. Food is very, very political. Um, let me ask you about cow farts. There's been a uh, lot of talk about yes. <laughs> cow farts lately. Um, it turns out that actually cow burps emit more methane than yeah. uh, cow farts, which I didn't know as somebody who's not around cows. Mm. But it seems like a very um, smelly business being around yeah, cows. it can be. You see, uh, some of those um, farts and burps are contributed to um, the grain that we're feeding cattle to put on more weight. And they can't break it down because they're not Designed. Do they have celiac disease? Well, I, I'm not sure, but they're not really designed to, to eat grain. They're designed to eat grass. Even the cow should go gluten-free. Uh, well, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and they're having trouble digesting it, so they burp more, um, and, and, and the gases are released. Uh, that's a big issue, uh, like the 
the carbon emissions or the methane emissions from cows in Ireland is, is a very is a is a huge section uh, of our our emissions, um, and I know globally it's a big one. Uh, we just have to smart farm smartly with it. Um, but when you get into a situation with a massive feedlot with ten thousand head of cattle, uh, that's a whole lot of methane going up into the environment. So your book was very successful in Ireland, and it was not called a farmer's son in Ireland, right? No, it was called the cow book, uh, which was a joke title. Uh, I wrote the I wrote several drafts and uh, they were all rejected and uh, in the end um, my parish priest who's who's a good friend uh, he used to just call it the cow book and uh, I said oh, screw it I'll just I'll we'll put it in one last time and call it the cow book as a joke and it got accepted <laughs> and, and, it's stuck. and and the book has uh, the book yes it spent thirty five weeks in the bestseller list in in Ireland and it's won all these awards and. They call me the cowman now, so uh, good it's, for you. Uh, yeah, yeah I, you've, you've made it. I've made it. It's unusual to get a nickname like that, and uh, it, but Irish people love uh, love labelling people, so I'm I'm the cowman. It sounds like it was tremendously resonant in Ireland, especially among people who hadn't seen themselves and their way of life depicted in a book before. Uh, well, you see, if you if you come from a rural community anywhere, you never see yourself in the media. Uh, there's maybe the odd TV show here or there, but but it, because most media is made in the urban environment, we don't see ourselves reflected. Now, I used to make TV, so I know this. So when the book came out, it touched a lot of people. And farming is the second biggest indigenous um, uh, sector in the country. So there are 100,000 farmers, but there's probably 250,000 people who are linked to the land in some way. You don't have to go back very far to scratch to find someone who has farming roots. So it allowed people who perhaps had left the land to come back to it, uh, in a sense. And um, in America, too, you know, the book the book's actually went to number one um, already. And it's, Congratulations. Thank you. So it's been, um, it's been an interesting thing because I think farmers uh, here share a lot of the similar problems that we do and they also uh, they at times have felt that they haven't been listened to so we've been talking with Farmaid about the book who I know do amazing work but the amazing thing out of that conversation was issues that I thought were unique to Ireland were a, exactly the same as here particularly farmer suicide in the Midwest and it's very high and um, rural communities not only do we need to see reflections of ourselves we need to hear positive stories. Mm. We could read a million hillbilly elegies if we want, but sometimes you need to hear a story about someone who came back and who's working on the land and things are good, rather than this is bad, this is crap, everyone's dying, or we have an opioid problem in a rural area. Sure, you want to sure. hear You want to hear a positive story. Absolutely, and I think the fact that you are a young man with promise, with other options, with other countries to live in who has come back to the land by choice yeah. um, and finds great solace there and that uh, you find you find your life transformed for the better yes. by being there yeah. is, is a very hopeful story. Yeah. Um, but we are, however, sitting here in Brooklyn. Yes, um, we are. <laughs> many of the people who will be listening to the show and watching the show are not from agrarian backgrounds. Talk to me about what this book offers for people who are not rural mm. farmers. Well, Really, the book is a is a book about a man falling in love with life again after a bad time, and uh, I think there's a universality to that. Yes, I'm. It's about cows and farming, uh, but it's a philosophical work. Really, it's about finding finding happiness. That really is what the book is about. Is about finding joy. We live in a world where individualism has been favoured over everything, 
but it has created the, the biggest isolation problem in the world. This is a book about finding community. Western society has, has created a situation where we all feel alone, but we're not, you know? And a city, you can be, feel even more alone than anywhere else, mm-hmm. but actually communities all around. Uh, the book is about a guy who has been an outsider coming into a community and, and finding it, embracing him again. Well, it's a beautiful book, and it's almost deceptive in its simplicity. Um, it feels very approachable, but it has all of these wonderful underlying messages, and I recommend people read it on a weekend upstate where <laughs> they leave their phone at home. Okay. <laughs> John, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Yesterday, author Jamie Attenberg tweeted the following. They're having a really good sale at Lowe's right now on spring plants, and while I was shopping today, a man in his 40s was eyeing the plants for a while until he shook his head wistfully and said, no room at the inn, and walked away. That man in his 40s was Caroline Gollum. We welcome her to teach us about houseplant care. Hi, Mackenzie. Um, Look at this beautiful array of plants that you brought. This isn't even the half of it. Do these normally live in your house? They do. They only live in my house because like many New Yorkers, I don't have an outdoor space with which to cultivate a garden. So I have to do my gardening indoors. And today I brought uh, plants that are kind of like smaller things that I put on end tables or set next to tchotchkes in a tasteful fashion. Um, One, because they're easier to transport in my Subaru. And two, because they're uh, kind of an interesting array of plants that require different levels of care, different levels of light, things like that. How lovely. And this is very important because we all need help. I speak for myself and Isabel. Um, so talk to me about, let's, can we say your favorite? Is that, is that a bit, is that asking you to pick your favorite well, child? Do you no. have a favorite? I do have a favorite, sort of. Um, my favorite plant, probably because it's the most dramatic of the ones here, is the monstera. Mm. Uh, monsteras are becoming like a very hot plant right now. I've seen a lot of tattoos of monstera leaves. Yes, the iconic split leaf philodendron, as it's also known, or Swiss cheese plant. Um, these little cuts and, and holes in here come from how much light they get. And the more mature oh, they get, yeah. The more mature they get, the more kind of holes that they that they get. So, and what does this say about your plant that it doesn't have that many perforations? How much light has it been getting? It probably hasn't been getting a whole lot. Um, these ones are in a window, but they're not like in the window. They're like set a little bit back because some plants, if you put them too close to the window, they scorch, and that's no bueno. You got to be mindful of that. But window adjacent. Window adjacent. They like to be a little bit further back. They like some some soft light that changes throughout the day. Now, I took a very scientific online quiz where I had to answer questions about how much I liked people and uh, would I rather eat pizza or hamburgers, and it told me that my personality type is a monstera. What would you say that says about me? I think it says about you that you like to um, that you like to show off a little bit. Okay. That you're not okay. shy about being uh, <laughs> photographed. That you're iconic. Uh huh. That you have a very unique look that people prize. Uh, Monster- I'll take it all. Yeah, it's all true. Uh, monsteras are are a nice plant that are kind of like if you're just in getting into plants and you want something that looks a lot more impressive than the amount of care it requires, the monstera is it because they're easy to, to care for, they're pretty hard to kill. Um, and then I always say to people, oh, what do I do if my plants die? You throw it out and you get another one, because it's a plant. You can compost you it. You can compost it. Um, Feed it, your plant with other plants. Yeah, it's like silence of the plants. 
<laughs> Soil and green as plants. Um, talk to me about some of these spider babies that you've brought. Yeah, I brought a couple. Spider baby is an amazing plant. Um, again, if you want a lot of look in your home for not a lot of effort, um, spider plants grow. They're kind of like these big bushy Dr. Seuss looking ones. And then if you see here, they start to have babies. Yeah, how, how are spider babies made? Um, through another spider plant, uh, they'll push up these vines that kind of come out from underneath, and uh, the vines will hang over the side, and they they create kind of like a carousel look. It looks so, or like um, those guys that wear those beer can hats at stadium games. Sure, it's kind of that vibe. Okay. So they they come off with these little vines, and they're really easy to harvest and propagate. They are amazing, cheap. Uh, housewarming gifts and like giveaways and stuff. Um, again, minimal effort, maximum karma. All you have to do if you want to propagate them is you cut the vine off and then you grab these little guys off of the vine. You get a kind of a bundle and you'll see here they've got these little nubs mm -hmm. and you just put them in water, comme ça, um, and then they start to root. And actually I have over here, so this is a spider plant that's oh, from my- Oh, it started to root. Yeah, it's from my desk upstairs. It sort of looks like a scallion. It looks a little bit like a scallion. I don't know if they're in the same family because I'm not a scientist, uh, but this is a really common way to propagate spider plants. And then I have in another terracotta pot next to that green bottle, a bunch of little guys that I just pulled off of a spider plant yesterday. The way that spider plants grow in the wild, because all plants have kind of a wild antecedent, is these actually grow on the ground, even though they're known to be really popular hanging plants. So they'll grow the vines, you know, the little, babies and then the babies will like fall to the ground and ah! then they'll take they'll stay on the and vine and then they'll like scurry scurry away <laughs> yeah and then if you feed them after midnight <laughs> no they come off the vine and then they sit on the ground and then once they're in the soil they take root that way um, I like to root them in water just because it's quicker mm -hmm. and again it's kind of nice to have a thing that exists in the liminal space between life and death suspended in liquid mm. on your desk plant zombies okay yeah I have a fungus growing in the soil of my wandering Jew right now and I don't, I just feel like I never know how much water my plants want. How do I, how do I know? Teach me. How do you know? Two things. One, if you've got a fungus growing in there, repot that plant. Okay. Get that soil out of there. Get some fresh soil. Um, hold off on watering. It'll look a little droopy, but it'll thank you later. Um, and then how often to water your plants? Different plants have different water requirements. So my wandering Jew, this is a cutting that I also took from home. I have one hanging in a nice, bright, sunny spot, um, but they do well in low light too. Um, you know, you kind of just have to do the, the finger test or the chopstick test. Like some plants, you know, if they're still wet down at the bottom, you don't want to add more moisture to mm -hmm. it because then the roots can get waterlogged and, and then they get root rot and then they I die. I just learned about the chopstick test. Yeah. So please, if our viewers have not heard of it. Chopstick test is, is fun and easy. You just take a chopstick and you jam it down uh, pretty much to the bottom of your planter and you pull it up. And it's like if you're testing a cake out of the oven. Um, if it comes up with soil stuck to it, it means that soil is wet. The plant hasn't dried out yet. If it's a plant that needs to dry out between waterings, like a cactus or a pilea or, um, or an oxalis or something like that, then you want it to dry out and you want to make sure that there's no water there. Some, you know, you want the top maybe like 25 to 30 percent of the soil to dry out. It really depends. I should take a moment now to tell you that I learned all of this from what I like to call the YouTube School of Horticulture. So it was a lot of like Googling, oh shit, what happened to my plant? Googling symptoms, talking to other people, getting anecdotal evidence. Anyone can be like a kind of homebrew expert on plants. You just have to be willing to like swap knowledge with people and Google things and have a curiosity. Uh, the thing to be mindful of, and I've made this mistake a bunch of times, I know a lot of other people have, is overwatering. You know, we all want to be caring and nurturing 
plant people because we can't own homes or afford to have children or dogs. But it's it's hard to know when you're watering your plant too much or when you're caring too much. So it's actually like we could be the helicopter parent. Absolutely. And doing damage to yeah. our children instead of helping them. Helicopter plant parenting is a real problem. And thank you for helping me to raise awareness. <laughs> I'm I'm really adamant about this. Like people just panic and they water their plants because they think they look weird. And like just if when in doubt, dry them out. This so, is why plants are better than pets for people who maybe aren't ready to take that step because you can just throw yeah. them out. You yeah. can't throw your dog out. Um, we have some questions from our viewers. Okay. And by viewers, I mean people who work on the show. Um, Isabel would like to know how to deal with her fungus gnat problem. Wow, we're revealing a lot. On yeah, show. look, fungus lives among us and there's not a whole lot that we can do about it but again if you find that the soil that you're keeping your plant in is like overwhelmingly overrun with funguses and gnats swap out the soil I also like to put stones at the top so like you have the top layer of soil you put a bunch of stones on top of there and then if it's a high humidity plant for instance a plant that likes a lot of humidity but maybe you don't want to water it too much you can water the stones and that humidity will like give the plant kind of a nice refresh. Mm, so that'll nice. keep the gnats from coming up to the surface. I have an aloe vera plant that I've had for probably six years. I got it at a deli from a friend of mine. It was a gift. Um, bodega plants, by the way, some of the hardiest plants I've ever encountered. The things they've seen. So the aloe vera got too much water and a mushroom started growing out of it. And oh. I got really weirded out by it. I was like, oh, what's this toxic thing? Like, am I going to die? What's going to happen to the plant? So sometimes these things look like crises because you're like, oh, this is a living thing in my care. And I've imbued so much of my neuroses into these plants in my life. But, um, but they have a lot to, to teach us. And if you just observe and like pay attention, you know, what they like most of all is consistency. They like consistent care. They like consistent light. And pretty much all they need to live is light and water. So if you find the right balance of those two elements, then, you know, they'll, they'll thrive and they'll reward you. How many plants do you have in your care? Ooh, um, that's a lot. Uh, probably, I mean, not in including cuttings, not including cuttings, because I have a propagation station in my home as well. What? No backyard, but a full propagation well, station. Well, it's just like a nice brass plant stand that I got at Goodwill that I stick plants on. Let's say, let's say not including cuttings. Not including cuttings. Can I list them off? It depends on how many you have. You I know, have, it's only a half hour show. Oh, crap. Um, I pr you know, if I had to guess, I'd probably say uh, 15 to 20. 15 to 20. Yeah. And do you, do you name them? Do you talk to them? Do you play them music? A lot of the plants in my apartment are in the front window of my living room. I'm very fortunate to have moved from a... Uh, what I like to call a sheetrock shitbox with no natural light to a really nice like second floor apartment with a lot of natural light. Moving on up. Moving on up. They were very happy about this too. Um, but a lot of them are in kind of like this front window area. We get a lot of light in the living room and then that's where we keep the stereo also. So they listen to music when we listen to music, but I'm not like time for your music session. I'm not that. Because there are it. albums that people have written mm -hmm. uh, specifically to play for your plants. Mm -hmm. But you're not all about that. Um, I mean, they, you know, they listen to whatever we listen to. It's mostly the radio. Uh, but yes, I know that you can play music for plants and they react to it. I've seen like some really heady 70s documentaries on Daily Motion. Their Secret Life of Plants um, shares the name with the Stevie Wonder album mm -hmm. uh, that speculates that plants can feel and they've done some tests on it and it was the 70s. There was a lot of stuff floating around. I mean, there's apparently a study yeah. that showed that plants that listened to Black Sabbath produced the most flowers. 
Um, I don't know what that says. I don't really listen to Black Sabbath, so I'll never find that out. Um, it's to be determined whether or not plants that listen to a lot of Steely Dan produce a lot of flowers. I think my plants are just happy to be chilling out. Um, but I don't talk to them. I mean, sometimes I do. Like, my Monstera, I mean, like I said, this is a cutting, but the one at home is, like, really big. Yeah, the Monstera is your favorite child. It is my favorite child. I bought a moss pole for it so that it can climb. It's a pole <laughs> with moss around it. Oh, got yeah. it. Um, and so do you name them at all? I don't because I would have to keep track of them, and I've got enough stuff. Right. to keep track of. I just, I'll talk to them a little bit. I'll say, oh, somebody's being fussy today. Or, Which plant you know, are you most likely to say that to? Um, that one. Or I had a I had a Dracaena that passed away, RIP to a real mm. one. And that one was just like, it was a, a lot of palliative care towards the end of like, we're going to make it easy for you. Yeah. I've also become the person that my friends give plants to, either because they want me to take care of them, like revive them, or because they just... My my apartment is like God's waiting room for plants where they're like, it needs to have an easy death in a home with a bay window. And I'm like happy to provide that. I like that it's like Caroline's home for wayward plants though, yeah. where you're going to rehabilitate them and restore them to their owner. Eventually. Yeah, it's kind of like that that guy in Oliver who trains all the boy thieves. Fagan. Fagan, yeah. My but last with, name. Uh, and Donald Fagan's too. Bring it all back to Steely <laughs> Dan. Nice. All right, some more questions, some mm -hmm. more viewer questions. Um, all right, I know that these are all house plants, but what would you recommend for an outdoor space that is dark, has bad drainage, and is inhabited by a dog that likes plants but doesn't respect them? Um, I'd recommend a fake plant. Or if it's dark, I mean, you could do a fern. Uh -huh. um, like a Boston fern is a really popular low-light plant. They need a lot of humidity. They they don't, you know, they don't like too much light. Uh, New York is really humid in the summer. Mm. Um, another good option, you know, they, they have, like, different shrubs and bushes and stuff that you can get. I mean... I wish I had a better answer for you, but like I said, uh, some AstroTurf and pink flamingos, that's what I would recommend about the backyard. Always a good look. I think uh, the best thing about having houseplants and part of why I'm so obsessed with, with doing it as a hobby is, one, it's good to have hobbies that don't include looking at your phone because your phone is a prison. Although sometimes you do have to use your phone to watch YouTube videos. About your related plants, to the yes, plants. or throw it on the airplay. But also, um, it's an exercise in patience. Like, you're not going to get you know, a beautiful array of blooms and foliage right away. You can buy a plant, like, full size, but, like, it'll change over time. And if you propagate things, if you prune them, if you rearrange and experiment with what kind of light requirements they need, you still have to wait a little while and observe. You know, it's a very slow hobby. But I think, you know, part of why plants are really popular right now and a huge part of why I like them is because they require you to slow down and observe and, and take time separate from whatever stressful thing you're doing to, like, keep track of things. And maybe we'll close out with sort of the intersection of your hobby and phones being prisons, mm -hmm. which is that there is a new genre of influencer who posts beautifully manicured photos of their plants. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about these plant Instagram celebrities? The plant fluencers. Mm. If I had a dollar for every time someone in my family sent me a lifestyle piece about a plant fluencer and went, Caroline, you like plants. You could make this into your side you hustle. You do social media you and just, you like plants. Yeah, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm doing the anti-version of that by saying that if you are the kind of person that, like, thrives on the feedback of posting about your plants on social media. And I have. I've done, like, Twitter threads about how to repot your plants and stuff. I found them very informational Thank and you. not at all vanity pieces, Thank I you. Say. Thank you. Um, if that's if that's your thing, like, you know, zygazunt, like, do, do whatever makes you happy. Um, for me, it's less about, like, a public display and more about just, like, having nice things in your home and looking at them. I think a lot of people are intimidated by plant care because it's become, like, a very hot thing and because they want everything to look manicured and, and it just becomes another performative aspect of our lives. Um, but it, it should be for you. Like, you should want to spend 
I don't know, 45 minutes out of your week rotating and watering and pruning all of these random things that don't talk to you and don't love you back because you like it, because you find it gratifying, because you like the way they look in your home, and because you like to give plant cuttings to your friends. Not because you're like, oh, my my crush is going to love my thirsty plant post. I like I, that. I, hashtag thirsty plant hashtag post. Hashtag thirsty plant post. Um, I think that's a really good point that often for people in their 20s who may be living or in 30s. Ur- or 30s living in their urban ur- urban cities with you know crushing student debt and 10 roommates we're like why can't we have nice things and the answer is you can have nice things you Look can absolutely this, a very accessible and beautiful monstera yeah and plant care is nothing new it's it's not like it's a trend that just started randomly because the new yorker wrote about it very excellently i should add um plants have been a part of people's lives since the hanging gardens of babylon and they became a more accessible thing for people to to put in their home you know like in the years after the industrial revolution the victorian era was kind of like the first big trend time for indoor plants um the reason for that being that like then as now, people were crushed with debt. They worked too much. They lived in airless rooms or windowless rooms, and they wanted to have a nice kind of little middle-class thing to remind them of maybe the native land that they'd come over from or uh, their brief glimpse of the outdoors that they get at Central Park. So people have been imbuing their anxieties about their status and about who they are as people into their plants for, like, literally a 100-and-something years. Caroline, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. That is the show for today. If you liked what you heard, the best way to show it is to name your firstborn calf after us. Also, please review Woman To Be Can iTunes and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. See you next time. Woman To Be K is hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is series produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Isabel Alcantara, Naeem Van, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded in studio by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hogseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. It is post-produced by Alexander Pointzolo, edited by Mira Al-Rahim, and executive produced by Jonathan Leaf, Sasha Mathias, and Aziz Aisham. 